You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called Business Frontiers, Social Responsibility, Sustainable Development and Economic Justice. So what are the positive signs, the stories of hope? Well, I draw my hope from the testimony of four people. They're Edgar Mitchell, James Lovelock, Victor Frankl, and George Washington Carver. And this is why. Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell, as many of you will recall, was one of the world's first astronauts to orbit the Earth and walk on the moon. The power of this achievement to change our thinking lay not in his physical journey into space, as incredible as that feat was. Rather, it was the images of our beautiful, fragile, blue-green planet Earth from space, which those first astronauts beamed back to us and captured in countless breathtaking photos, which brought a new consciousness to humanity. For the first time, perhaps, we became aware of the Earth as a single, unified, living whole, rather than a politically divided patchwork of countries and societies fighting over resources and money. Edgar Mitchell's account of the effect of these images on him are truly moving. He describes the experience as one equivalent to enlightenment or a revelation, a shift in his being which touched him on a deeply spiritual level. I think this powerful image of the living unified earth is our first true cause for hope. It is a symbol of both the current physical reality and a future social and spiritual reality for which to aspire. James Lovelock. Then there is James Lovelock, an astronomical scientist who brought the science to back up our intuitive understanding of the Earth as a living whole. Lovelock had, since 1965, been working for NASA on a model to determine whether life could exist on Mars or not. In order to do this, he had to ask the question, what are the conditions which sustain life on Earth? But in the course of this investigation, an unexpected conclusion was reached, namely that the Earth, previously accepted by science to be an inert physical object, appears to demonstrate the capacity to self-regulate innumerable conditions, for example, gas concentrations, climate, bacteria growth, and so on, in order to create a suitable environment for life to flourish. And yet this is the very same characteristic which defines living organisms. His rationale, backed by a rigorous scientific model, was launched to the world in the 1970s as the Gaia hypothesis, named after the Greek goddess of the earth. Essentially, the scientific community now had to face up to the challenging fact that the earth system as a whole may be a living, self-regulating, self-sustaining organism. And yet this is exactly the understanding implied for thousands of years through the mythological images of indigenous cultures, such as the Tree of Life and the Mother Earth Goddess. Viktor Frankl I'm now moving on to discuss my third question, namely how we are influenced or inspired by nature. And this is where my third source of hope comes in, Viktor Frankl. Most of you know that Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps and the creator of the psychiatric technique known as logotherapy, which deals with the way in which people find meaning or purpose in their lives, 
Frankel, in his book Man's Search for Meaning, gives me great hope about the innate quality in humans to appreciate and be inspired by nature, even in the direst of circumstances, such as those in which he found himself during the Second World War. I wish to quote from his book to illustrate my point. He says, As the inner life of the prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence, he sometimes even forgot his own frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces on the train journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp, as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits glowing in the sunset through the little barred windows of the prison carriage, you would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up hope on all life and liberty. Despite that factor, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. In camp, too, a man might draw the attention of a comrade working next to him to a nice view of the setting sun shining through the tall trees of the Bavarian woods, the same woods in which we had built an enormous hidden munitions plant. One evening, when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, dead tired, soup bowls in hand, a fellow prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out to the assembly grounds and see the wonderful sunset. Standing outside, we saw sinister clouds glowing in the west and the whole sky alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colours from steel blue to blood red. The desolate grey mud huts provided a sharp contrast while the puddles on the muddy ground reflected the glowing sky. Then after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, How beautiful the world could be! End quote. Frankel also gives us a clue to why we may be in the collective state of abusing our planet, much in the same way as they were abused as prisoners in the concentration camps. He talks about how on the day of their release from the camp, they all went walking in a meadow close by, filled with flowers. But to their surprise, they felt almost incapable of appreciating its beauty. They had become numb to beauty and experiencing pleasure. Could this not be the same mental state in which our city-bound, rat-race-stressed population of today finds themselves? Many people have become so isolated and detached from nature that they feel numb, incapable of sensing its beauty and wonder, and insensitive to any damage they may be causing it. George Washington Carver Another clue comes from the last, perhaps least known person I mentioned earlier, namely George Washington Carver, an American slave descendant who became known as the Black Leonardo. Were it not for his achievements, Carver would probably have been written off by history as one of those crazy, uneducated, superstitious but harmless mumbo-jumbo types. Why? Because he talked, listened to, sang to and healed plants. But the world could not ignore him, for Carver was an agricultural chemist with a master's degree who discovered the commercial benefits of the peanut, used only for hog food at the time around the Civil War, and the sweet potato as well. In his long career, which stretched into his 80s, Carver invented hundreds of new products, including cosmetics, axle grease, printer's ink, petroleum substitutes, shampoos, creosote, vinegar and wood stains, to mention just a few. 
all from nature's bounty, and all because he took the time to listen to nature's wisdom. When asked about his prolific knowledge and inventions, he had this to say, and I quote, Nature is the greatest teacher, and I learn from her best when others are asleep. In the still dark hours before sunrise, God tells me of the plans I am to fulfill. The secrets are in the plants. To elicit them, you have to love them enough. Everyone can, if only they believe it. End quote. And indeed, perhaps the world is beginning to learn from Carver, for most of the world's newest and fastest developing technologies do nothing more than attempt to mimic the ingenuity of nature, from artificial intelligence and biotechnologies to solar energy and phototronics. The personal journey. But what about each of us in our own daily lives? Are we listening? I believe that for creation to be healed, each of us needs to be that connection between earth and sky. We each need to find our own sense of meaning and inspiration from nature. Whether it be by growing things, by walking in the mountains and forests, by actively campaigning for environmental issues, by consciously buying environmentally friendly products, or by allowing ourselves to relate more intimately with the creatures which share our planet. There is a useful little way to maintain a focus on this process of listening and learning from nature. Most ancient indigenous cultures have a strong tradition of animal, plant or landscape totems. We should not treat these as superstitious nonsense, for we create our own meaning and most meaning can be found in symbols. Ask yourself which of nature's creations most inspires, teaches or challenges you. Adopt a particular animal or tree or mountain and learn as much as you can from it before looking for a new totem. In my own life, I stumbled across the fairly unlikely influence and wonder of geese. After a close encounter with two who flew closely past me when I was at Zoo Lake in Johannesburg about two years ago, and to illustrate how meaning can emerge from such a relationship with another creature, this is what I learned about geese. The goose was a sacred bird in Rome's temple of Juno. It was associated with Boreas, the north wind in Greek mythology, and is also the totem for the winter solstice in the Native American medicine wheel. The goose is also symbolic of writing and storytelling, with its quill having been used as a pen for many generations. In more practical terms, by flying together in V formation, geese get where they are going almost twice as quickly with half the effort. When the lead goose gets tied, it simply drops to the back of the formation and another takes the lead. Those near the back continually honk encouragement to the ones up front. And when one of the geese is injured or becomes ill and drops out of the formation, two other geese always drop out and stay with it until it recovers. So what is your messenger from nature? Are you ready to listen? I want to end by referring again to some of the words from Carver. He says, and I quote, when I touch that flower, I'm touching infinity. It existed long before we were human beings on earth and will continue to exist for millions of years to come. Through the flower, I talk to the infinite, which is only a silent force. This is not a physical contact. It is not an earthquake, wind or fire. It is in the invisible world. It is that still small voice that calls up the fairies, Many people know this instinctively, and none better than Tennyson when he wrote, 
Flower in the crannied wall, I pluck you out of the crannies. I hold you here, root and all, in my hand, little flower. But if I could understand what you are, root and all, and all in all, I should know what God and man is. End quote. So perhaps if we listen to our hearts and our souls, if we tune into the earth spirit, we can help to ensure that the child of the future quoted in Time magazine has a different ending. And I quote, The young girl awoke on a cool, inviting morning. It wasn't a school day, so she could look forward to doing what she liked best. Her family was going just outside the city into the great forest, where they would stroll under the tall trees, spot wild animals, and wade in the clear-running streams. Every time they went, she felt lucky. After all, her parents had told her stories about the old days, before people learned to protect the land and water and harness the wind and the sunlight. It was a dark time. When the forests died, rivers ran dry and millions went hungry. The girl was amazed and frightened that such a thing could ever have happened. But there was no need to think about that now, not with a glorious day ahead. It was so good to be alive, especially for a child. End quote. 